part of the discomfort that I feel with a lot of the sort of cancel culture type approaches to these conversations is that I very much believe in extending grace to people and, you know, forgiving them for missteps. And I think part of the reason why I am drawn to that kind of approach is because of the influence that Christianity has had on my own thinking to care about, like to, to really believe that every human being is capable of uh, redemption and growth in the in this area, right? And I feel like sometimes in these conversations, people don't extend that grace to each other. Thank you for uh, coming on to the podcast with Josh and I today. We're really, really excited. And I've been really looking forward to talking with you ever since reading your book. Fascinating. And I have different questions than Josh because as I'm a I'm an executive coach, whereas he's a consultant. So we come in <laughs> from two completely different angles. Uh-huh. Sounds great. Okay, good. Um do you want to start us off? We might ask, have David talk about himself a little bit. Well, yeah, just absolutely. Start. Let, tell us a little bit about yourself, David. Sure. So, uh, as you could probably tell by my accent, I am originally from Australia. Uh, moved to the U.S. about a decade ago. Uh, I have two kids, two boys, age five and three. Uh, my professional training is as a lawyer originally, uh, worked in employment and anti-discrimination law, and then I moved over into this field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and have been working at a research center at NYU School of Law called the Meltzer Center for Diversity and Inclusion and Belonging, where I work very closely with my co-author, Kenji Yoshino, and he and I just wrote this uh, new book, Say the Right Thing. Congratulations. Uh, so first book, it's coming out, what, February 7th, is that right? February 7th, correct. Yeah, I think this. I think yes. we're hoping this interview will come out about a week before, so that's what we're shooting for. So okay, yeah, right. sounds good. Um. Yeah, and of course, since we just have you, I won't try to tell a joke about attorneys because I was sort of thinking if we had two attorneys, that might be a little scary to talk to and for some people. But, we're, we're kind of, <laughs> but you probably yes. turned for many of those jokes. Um, we are wondering though, like, just if you could tell us a little bit more, I'd love to hear. When we read the book, I think we saw lots of connections to other books. Some you referenced, like difficult conversations. Could you mm -hmm. talk about um, in terms of communication, change management, some of the stuff we dabble in? What were some of the um, kind of main influencers, you would say, researchers, thinkers, mentors, writers that sort of, I mean, there was a long list, obviously, of the references in the back. But if you could pick like the three most influential folks, uh, topics, yeah. whatnot in, in the work, you'd love to know, hear more about that. Yeah, so definitely the book Difficult Conversations for sure uh, was a huge influence on us. Um, that was actually, we we taught that book in a course uh, at NYU Law where okay. we, we uh, taught a course called Leadership, Diversity and Inclusion. And that was one of the texts that we assigned because we wanted to give students skills on how to navigate difficult conversations. But what we kind of found with that book was, as you know, it gives really uh, kind of broadly applicable advice around how to navigate conversations really on any topic in the you know workplace or with neighbors or whoever. And we felt like these conversations in particular created some of their own unique challenges for people um, that that book, you know, didn't really delve into, not because it's a flaw with the book, it's just not what they were setting out to do. And so um, but the the basic structure of that book, the the fact that it's practicable, a uh, practical, applicable, skills based, 
uh, we wanted our book to be similar in that in that way. Um, another huge influence on us was the uh, social psychologist Dolly Chug. She's written a book called The Person You Mean to Be, uh, which is about similar issues of of bias and and inclusion. Uh, the difference with her book is that it's more of a an overall guide for people on how to be more inclusive in their in their life, right? As opposed to a laser focus on the topic of conversations. And we wanted to, again, really narrowly focus on that. So I would say our book is kind of like if Dolly Chug's book and Difficult Conversations Had a Baby is kind of how I would think about it and <laughs> and and what we were trying to achieve here. Okay, great. Um, move next. Want me go next? Uh, yeah, you, you go. You go. Okay. Well, I think one of the ways I would love to start, you know, is sort of in the middle of the book, actually, you know, around um, areas of disagreement. And while the goal for today is not to get into a debate or to change anyone's mind, we really want to mm-hmm. make curiosity, right? <laughs> it's, it's our goal. And chapter three, chapter I like three, that. really like that. Um, and I think one of the areas we were thinking about was, you know, on the one of the, kind of the current tenor of the nation's dialogue, which is why I thought the topic was so timely, right, is, is we have such mm. a challenge around having good dialogue, even when we have significant disagreements, of which even the three of us probably have significant disagreements on issues. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding that, um, I would love to sort of start with that idea of uncommon commonalities. Can mm. you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, I, and I think I think the goal would be to like find that early on in the conversation, right? Can you talk more about right. what those are? I mean, we read about it, but folks listening may not have um what yeah those are, and, then, and then maybe if they're suggesting ways when you go through a conversation how do you get to those areas like how do you get to those like out loud so you sort of agree with the other person you might be disagreeing with on mm-hmm. commonalities yeah so it's a great question uh we also think this is a particularly challenging area in the book and in these conversations more generally because it's about conversations about identity and diversity issues and you only need to look at the news headlines to realize people are kind of screaming at each other about these topics a lot so one of the tips we have in that chapter is to find uncommon commonalities as you said and the the thought behind that is Oftentimes in these conversations, we fixate on the areas where we disagree with each other, but it can actually help to have a more respectful disagreement if you realize that there are lots of areas of overlap. And quite often people discover those areas of overlap without expecting that they're going to, because we tend to assume on these topics, right, if someone's, let's say someone's more socially conservative about a particular issue and someone's more liberal on an issue... I think a lot of the time, both parties are going to assume going into that conversation that they're kind of radical opposites of each other, when in fact, there might be areas that they agree on. And so a good example of this would be, you know, Kenji and I are both gay and we both have, um, you know, been advocates for same-sex marriage. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we had in common with people who perhaps have more conservative views on that topic is that we have a reverence for the institution of marriage, right? There are some people within the LGBTQ community, especially historically, who have had a total disdain for the entire institution of marriage and have seen it as an inherently oppressive patriarchal construct, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that would be an example of kind of an area where if if someone were to have a conversation on that topic, you might be able to find some common ground just about a respect for the institution that people um, share, 
But a lot of the commonalities are going to come out through things that aren't really about talking about the topic itself. You just find it through talking with the other person. So an example that we use in the book is a conversation between a professor of African-American studies, Carol Anderson, and these uh, two uh, parents in uh, Georgia who are conservative and were opposing the hiring of a diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator in their local school district. And they were very much in this uh, mode of, you know, opposing critical race theory, et cetera. And they're speaking with Carol Anderson, who's a well-known progressive race scholar, right? Mm -hmm. But in their conversation, and it's available online for anyone who wants to watch it, it goes for about an hour. But what I found fascinating about that conversation was they spend a lot of time just talking, just getting to know each other, right? What was your family background? Where did you grow up? You know, and what they found through that experience was that they had, had a lot of shared identities in terms of the kind of family that they grew up in, the sort of values that they were raised. And I think that really set the scene to ensure that when they did get to the disagreements, they were able to do it in a more respectful way because they felt more of that affinity with each other. It's sort of like, okay, I'm no longer seeing you as an enemy now in this conversation. I'm seeing you as someone that I can relate to in certain ways, which then makes it easier for us when we get to the points of disagreement to be able to have that in a more respectful manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that, I think that makes sense. I think um, one of the things I was hoping for your permission to try out was even attempting to find a few of those between us. You know, we had the privilege, of course, of reading everything, a lot about you in the book. <laughs> you don't know much about us. Um, yeah. We, we, as you're not surprised to see, we're both white, uh, middle-aged men <laughs> using some of those characteristics, uh, tend to be conservative-leaning Christians. Um, so there may be significant areas of disagreement. But, you know, a couple of things I noted in the book, you know, attempting to like build these uncommon commonalities I noted was I think we all agreed that there's significant room for improvement, right, around dialogue, right, and these very sensitive issues. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I really liked about the book that a lot of business leaders I work with don't like is this idea that everyone has bias, but actually that's not too far from the Christian view around sin, right, and the fact that we mm -hmm. all have this continual struggle against something in ourselves that forces us away from the things we want to do or hold, hold truths that there's actually a lot of common, I think commonality there. Um, the Bible mm -hmm. so is heavily, you know, filled with this call to justice for the widow and the orphan, the outcast, the poor, the oppressed. I mean, you can't get away from that. Right. And I, so mm -hmm. I a lot of, um, a lot of overlap, even if there are areas of disagreement. And I will say on a personal note, I noted you mentioned in your, <laughs> about you preferring to avoid conflict and disagreement. I, that resonated with me. I'm the same way. Um, watch out for Eric. He's not that way, but, <laughs> <laughs> but for me. <laughs> so anyhow, is that, I don't know if that's, if yeah. I, that's a good, good, tell me if I did okay there. You can coach me a little bit, but that was yeah. attempt to kind yeah. of conversation to go. Well, there's a lot of commonalities here, even if we have disagreement in other areas. No, I love that. And I mean, I, I would sort of add to that as well, which might not have been apparent from the book that, you know, I grew up in an evangelical Christian household and and still continue. I'm not, I, I don't sort of identify myself as a Christian these days, but I still very much respect, you know, Christian worldview and, and thinking and have been immersed in that in my family and friendship networks and so on. Um, and I think a lot of my thinking on these issues has been influenced by, by my Christian upbringing in that way. So for example, you mentioned the you know, connection between everyone having bias and everyone being a sinner, which I love. And I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection in my head before, 
But I think there's also, you know, we write in the book about apologies and um, I think the Christian, the idea of repentance in yeah. Christianity, I, I, I think, yeah. you know, I, and I think also we write a whole chapter about the importance of being generous toward people who make mistakes in these conversations, generous towards sources of non-inclusive behavior, at least for me, um, part of the discomfort that I feel with a lot of the sort of cancel culture type approaches to these conversations is that I very much believe in extending grace to people and, you know, forgiving them for missteps. And I think part of the reason why I am drawn to that kind of approach is because of the influence that Christianity has had on my own thinking to care about, like to, to really believe that every human being is capable of uh, redemption and growth in the in this area right and i feel like sometimes in these conversations people don't extend that grace to each other right right david i loved what you had to say about uh apologizing and grace and uh jumping down to one of the questions that I had later in the podcast but I'm going to pull back up the way I coach the, the base of my coaching is the the foundation I use the format of grace truth and time and I loved how you brought up grace because if you coach someone no one's ever completely no one's perfect at all so my question is is there a way to apologize without compromising one's belief if there's a disagreement so like take two sides and no one's typically perfect. So let's say both sides have a fault somewhere, but how do you apologize without compromising? Cause I think a lot of times people think if, if I apologize, I've completely given up, you know, everything is, do you see where I'm saying? I'm yeah. Figure that out. Yeah. I mean, the way I would think about this is really, um, if there's a genuine disagreement there, then you might actually be more in the realm of disagreement than in the realm of apology. So there actually might be, it depends on whether you truly do believe that you have done something wrong. I don't think you can give an authentic apology unless you genuinely have reflected on the issue and you accept that, yes, what I said, what I did was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. It caused harm to that other person. If you reflect on it and you think, for example, like let's, I mean, let's take the example I gave earlier about same-sex marriage, for instance, right? If someone has a belief based on their religious values, that's in opposition to that. And let's say they voice that opinion. And then someone in my position says, well, that really upset me that you expressed that point of view and I want an apology from you. Um, I think in that instance, if you felt like you expressed your viewpoint respectfully and you were just, you know, sharing from the heart what you think and you didn't say anything horribly offensive to me, then I think that's where you're really in the realm of disagreement at that point rather than in the realm of apology. And I worry that if you tried to offer an, a, a, a sort of half apology there, that it would come across as, as insincere and it wouldn't land in the way that you would want it to anyway. So I think with an apology, I guess the only area where I feel like maybe you could do it, sort of, would be if you just said to the other person that, you know, you're very sorry for hurting them, right? It hurts you to see them in pain, right? From from hurting them. 
and yet also explain the sort of basis for your perspective. That means that you're honoring your values and the disagreement that you're having rather than trying to tick off all of the elements of an apology that we talk about in the book. Sure. No, that's good. Thank you. Um, switching gears a little bit, just because we have to go so fast. I, by the way, I cut out so much from this script trying to can get it down to 45. I had like two, three hours we could probably spend with you. So, <laughs> so we're, this might feel fast. I apologize. No, uh, no worries. For sure, because we're not trying to rush through this because there's a lot of great content. One of the questions I have, a little context, is I have one of my three kids is uh, Haitian born. So he's adopted. He's obviously black. Um, we face bias at times. That's not the nature of my question. One of the things I am challenged with, I've struggled with for years, I wanted to pose to you, is uh, personally wrestled with how to navigate when cultivating curiosity, how to navigate the difference between and pick any, um, I would say any sort of um, characteristic group, maybe you don't know a lot about, right? So not not specifically race, but how do you navigate the difference between cliche and stereotypes and a true understanding of the culture, right? Of a group of people associated with that characteristic, if that makes sense. Because like, mm -hmm. for example, one of the things I try to do with my son is it seems the research I've done, and again, I don't know how perfect it is, barbershop culture is important to the African-American community. So I make a point of finding a barber who knows how to cut my son's hair, who most times is either is either African-American or biracial um, and make an experience out of going to a barbershop, even if it's not where I live in a rural area, not entirely black barbershop. Um, but I've done that and I've been the only white guy in the room. And that's it's interesting experience. Um, how would you sort of help someone navigate the difference between not just extending the stereotypes of a characteristic group, but also trying to understand the culture. Because I think it's it's really, I struggle to sort of pull the two apart. Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that before. I mean, what comes to mind for me with that is learning about any of these issues, right? Any kind of identity group that you think about. Um, you, could, you could spend your entire life reading books, reading articles, talking to people from that group, listening to podcasts, et cetera, and you still would not learn everything there is to know about a, a particular culture or their history or their traditions or what have you. So I think what you just described to me is exactly the kind of mindset we're trying to cultivate in the book, which is a curiosity toward learning while also recognizing yeah, the danger of of stereotyping, recognizing the need to continue learning. I mean, for example, like let's say you you thought you understood something about this culture and you said, oh, I think, you know, people from this culture, this is very important to be from this culture. And then as you start immersing yourself in that, you discover, oh, actually, like, I think this is not correct or I've been misled here or I'm sp I've spoken to other people who tell me that this is not really a thing or that's something that you're, yeah. So, again, that's part of curiosity is you're going to make mistakes, you're going to learn, and then you can recalibrate and you can kind of add to that over time. So I think what I would really say there, it's it's that constant posture of openness and learning that's really going to serve people well in this domain, because everyone's going to make mistakes. I think a lot of what holds people back is, is fear, right? Um, I start to learn, I realize I've put my foot in it, and so I'm just going to withdraw altogether and not even try because I failed the first time. And what we want to do is actually, you know, cultivate more of that growth mindset of, you know what, yeah, I am going to fail, but I fail at everything sometimes. And then I just pick myself back up again and try to learn more. I'm not sure if that fully answers the question you asked, but I hope it kind of indicates where, where we're headed, which is just recognizing that it's kind of a lifelong process of learning and correcting as you go.
Yeah, no, I think I appreciate you did answer my question. Yeah, I, I think it's just one of those keep leaning in. It, it's not an easy answer, you know, it, 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 to sort of you maybe laugh when you said a lifelong challenge because I'm very much a check the box type of person. And I realized very early on in our journey that there was never a point at which I was going to introduce my son to enough people who look like him and find enough things that were, you know, sort of connected to his culture. There is no end to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is right. both daunting, but then at the same time, you sort of accept it and you just, you lean into it. Right. And I think, uh, yep. I think that makes sense. Uh, one of my favorite parts of your book, David, was you have this really great uh, on pages 164 and 165 strategies when there are disagreements. And um, I've always found myself, I don't know what to say. And as I've worked more on coaching others and being coached myself, I love this because you're kind of giving me some weapons to not just say, I just disagree with you or this or that, but strategies such as emphasize the impact on you or model what they could have said and I've tried some of these and I was thinking of, I, I wrote inside of your book, it's it's really, uh, I wrote uh, emotional intelligence is kind of, it, were those strategies kind of built on like the, a lot of the emotional intelligence work that's coming out or how, how did you get to that? Because I, I agreed with everything you wrote on these, these two pages, like you nailed it. I feel like I can engage in conversations with people with different views by using these strategies. Tell me about that. Oh, well, thank you. So yeah, these are basically strategies of, you know, if someone says something that you perceive to be, you know, non-inclusive or biased or what have you, and you want to challenge what they've said, but you freeze up and don't know what to say, it's a kind of a menu for people to choose from of different options of what might make sense for them to say. And we came up with that because we wanted to think of responses that would help the other person hear a different point of view or a different perspective or learn from, you know, perhaps the mistake that they had made without completely shutting down the conversation, right? I think this gets a little bit back to the cancel culture stuff I was mentioning earlier of, you know, it can be tempting when you hear someone do something that you consider to be offensive or harmful in some way to immediately jump to, well, I should, you know, shout them down or condemn them for what they've said, or alternatively to just run away and think, well, I'm too scared to say anything, so I'm just going to say nothing. And we wanted to offer people tools uh, that would really invite learning. So, uh, you know, another example that we have there is to say, you know, one of the things that I would say is, um, you know, when you said X, I felt Y. So the focus is on me. The focus is on my interpretation of what they said rather than immediately jumping to you know, accusing them of something. And we built it. Some of the examples in that table are just lines that we came up with entirely on our own. And then others uh, come from different sources, including the Dolly Chook book that I mentioned earlier, uh, including work by Diane Goodman, who's a diversity consultant, um, a couple of other books that are in the citations with that table. But we just packaged it together from a whole bunch that we'd found out there. Great. Yeah, I like that. Um, kind of switching to another topic. Um, this is kind of early in the book, but I wanted to ask a little bit about it, just to understand a difference I was struggling to, to pull apart. You mentioned 
the four conversational traps. You talk, you tell an interesting story about Nancy, I think, in the online forum, kind of in the fall, and the sort of the difference. Mm-hmm. I think it was following a shooting spree, and I think there there was. I'm summarizing both. We haven't seen her, but I think it, keep me honest. Um, I think if I understood it right, that the, the coverage was really about the race element. I think she brought the fact that she thought it was a gender element. Um, and and what, while I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't engage in online forums. And there's a lot of problems in that whole scenario, which you which you outlined. I guess the question I was left with was, could you help me understand the difference between channel switching, which I think is what you called it, versus just having a difference of opinion? Because on the, on the other hand, you could just say, well, Nancy just saw a different correlation of the data points, right? So what's yeah. the difference between that channel switching, which I think you said is something to, to try to avoid, versus just having a difference of opinion? It's a great question. Uh, so this is about a story relating to, I, I believe it was the Atlanta spa shooting, where it was in particular, um, Asian women seemed to be the primary target of the shooter. And a lot of the media coverage really focused on the Asian element of it. And we're attributing the shooter's motives to race, like a racial animus. And so Nancy's point in this forum was to say that she thought it was actually a gender issue. And initially the people that she was speaking to said, oh, great point, Nancy. Like the media's ignored a lot of the gender angle. Like, thank you for raising issues of intersectionality, meaning the intersection of race and gender at the same time. And Nancy responded, oh, no, no, no. I'm not talking about the intersection. I'm just, this is just about gender. This is not about race. Stop talking about race. Um, And of course, that made a lot of people upset to say, well, why are you like, you've just said that we're ignoring gender and now why are you ignoring race? And it led to a big blow up and the conversation was kind of a disaster. Um, And so the point we make is it's not helpful to sort of reflexively switch channels. So oftentimes when people switch channels, it's because they feel uncomfortable talking about a topic that's been raised by someone else and they want their topic to have prime of place in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's kind of, well, I'm just going to like pull the conversation over to my preferred topic and that's not really a great strategy. I but, see. you know, one of the, um, if you genuinely think, right, like let's say you, you you know, another example in the that we use is is when someone was talking about systemic racism and the person in the conversation actually thought, you know what, I don't think this is a race issue. I think this is a socioeconomic status issue. I think this is an issue of, of poverty. So I think we should be talking about this. Now, if you genuinely believe that and that's your considered view, I actually think it's perfectly fine under the principles we have in the disagreement chapter to then have that conversation as a respectful disagreement where you say, you know, I hear you on the on the race issue. Here's why, you know, my considered view is that I think it's, a, you know, more of a gender issue or more of a socioeconomic status issue. Uh, I think the main tip I would give to people in doing that is it might be helpful to rate, like, have the conversation about whatever issue the other person has raised with you and then raise your own issue as a as a separate topic to add into the conversation rather than doing it as a channel switching thing. So I think if Nancy had acknowledged the concerns that people have about race and sort of allowed them to talk about race as an issue and then also kind of raise separately, you know, hey everyone, you know, I'm I'm concerned about the omission of gender in this conversation, I think that would have gone down better for her than by insisting that actually you need to stop talking about your topic. We're actually only going to talk about my topic. 
Right. Okay. So that's a, I think what, what I'm inferring there is just a, a general posture of humility, I think is, is probably a good element to include, right. And, and when we're trying to explain our views around topics, we know are probably going to be met with some disagreement. Is that a fair summary? Totally. And also the difference between reflexive and reflective. So we make that yeah. distinction a few times in the book where oftentimes with the negative behavior that we're talking about is more of a reflexive knee jerk reaction that people might have as opposed to taking a beat to really think about it and then offer a considered viewpoint. I think there's a huge difference between I'm so uncomfortable with this that I'm just going to like fling back a different topic in your face as opposed to, yeah, I hear you with, I've heard you with curiosity. I've thought about your viewpoint. I respect where you're coming from. And yet here is how I continue to see the issue differently. Right. Okay. I'm going to, so I'm not only am I a coach, David, I, I run a, uh, a home healthcare company and we're in the state of Washington state, which is one of the more liberal states in the United States. And so we have of the, I would say we have about 80 employees here and they're what exactly what you would expect for a very diverse um, company. I think I have a solution, at least in the private. And I want I wanted to run this by you. So like like anywhere else, just say take 80 random people in a small rural community and you're going to get everything from far right to far left to you name it. And the way I've approached um, leading our company is not to you know say, OK, we're going to be a conservative company or a liberal company, but I focus uh, on key performance indicators, because I see it as a way of, because I mean, really at the end of the day, how great are we at taking care of our customers, selling wheelchairs, you name it. You come to us not for our politics, you come to us for mm -hmm. our care. So mm -hmm. my question for you is on more business side things. I'm not talking about, you know, a, just, I, I think a solution is not necessarily what political uh beliefs someone has or religious is what are the key benchmarks that determine a good or bad business in an industry? So my business is how great can we take care of customers in home health care or mm -hmm. in other areas? And I think what we do is we get distracted with these side things where like, really, if you come to my business, it's not what I believe. You just need a wheelchair for a loved one. Am I pointed in the right direction? And I think we get distracted with the wrong beliefs. Um, when it, it should be quite simple. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, businesses all have a mission, a purpose of what it is that they're working on, right? And if you're not running a, an ideological business, right, a, you know, lobbying firm or a, an activist organization or something, then I think this distinction that you're drawing between key performance indicators that you want people to achieve and what you're focusing on in the day-to-day -day work and distinguishing that from political debates, I think is perfectly reasonable and healthy. In fact, I think where it can sometimes get complicated or muddled is, you know, what happens if let's say someone in your business says, you know, Hey, I am a whatever, insert group here, right? I am, I'm a black woman or I am a, a lesbian or whatever. And I feel excluded in this workplace. I, here's something that someone said to me in a meeting last week that made me feel small or made me feel excluded. 
then all of a sudden you are forced into that conversation of having to navigate that dynamic of, okay, are we doing enough as a, as a culture to make sure everyone in this space feels that they're included? But I see that as different from the political angle. Cause I think including people on the basis of their identity characteristics, I think you can distinguish that between having a debate between the far left and the far right. I think that's just about how do we treat people with respect and inclusion in our organization. And I think uh, just studying like ADA stuff, like I have one of my team leaders, he has a CF and he has a really hard time walking. Whereas I've had be able to say, Hey, I need to know, here's your job description and your KPIs. I need to know, the extent of your disability, what, what do I need to accommodate from? So I, I, I had to just sit down and say, I need to know how can I accommodate your disability? Cause it's, it's mm. a physical disability. He, he can only walk so far. And mm-hmm. what I was encouraged with is he was really open and honest. Hey, thank you for asking me that question. Cause he did need to be accommodated for because he gets tired because of his disability. But I think a lot of people feel so scared to even ask those questions because they can see mm-hmm. how do I accommodate for this. And but what he does bring to me, he brings in, in terms of fitting of wheelchairs, a dynamic that I as an able-bodied marathon running individual could never bring because mm-hmm. he lives in a mobility challenged body. So, yeah. so and this is where I, it, it's, I, I'm trying to figure out how to put the, KPIs on one side versus perspectives and disabilities on the other side. I just, it's tricky, but I do think it's doable with key performance indicators on most issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what that example illustrates really well is just the power of actually showing people that you care, right. And that you want to create an environment that meets their needs as a person and that you acknowledge that that's an issue. I think sometimes, as you said, people are so scared of getting it wrong that they think, well, I'm just not going to bring this up at all. I'm just going to ignore it and hope that it doesn't become an issue. And I think what the problem with that is from his perspective, he might interpret that not as sort of neutrality. He might interpret that as this person's not valuing who I am or treating me in the way that I want to be treated in this work environment. And so what you did by actually going to him and having the conversation, I think was critical. And so often in leadership, I think just that willingness to make yourself feel a little bit uncomfortable to get outside your comfort zone and and sit down with another person and say, Hey, you know, how are you experiencing things here? Is there anything that I can do to support you? Just that step alone, I I think, is often met with a lot of generosity back on the other side. And even if you make a mistake, even if you accidentally use the wrong word or what have you, I think just the fact that you've shown that outreach and respect to the other person is usually met with goodwill on the other side, in my experience. And that actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask um, about allies. You mentioned allies in the book quite a bit, which I really appreciate. I like that language. There is, there's a fear, I think, people I, personally, I feel people I talk to that it didn't seem mentioned. You may have meant it, sort of, so I'd love to unpack it a little bit. But I think one of the fears is around when you go to be an ally with someone, there may be a desire to ally with them around a particular um, area. But we have such an all or nothing culture. A lot of these political agendas, mm-hmm. I think even just these DE and I agendas are sort of you have to believe all of it or none of it. You don't have there's no in between. Mm-hmm. That really creates for me a lot of fear 
as we talked earlier, mm-hmm. a person of, of faith who has very core religious beliefs about what's been taught and the authority in our lives. But there are several things in those, right, that I can agree with and several mm-hmm. things I fundamentally can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, how as an ally can I come to someone uh, and, and sort of like some, some of the examples Eric talked about and try to help be an ally in one particular area without feeling like I have to completely affirm every other area or every other characteristic mm-hmm. where I might have trouble, right? Yeah. There's a desire to be compassionate about, no, you shouldn't be treated, hate, you shouldn't be hated. You shouldn't read hateful comments. You shouldn't hear, you know, those anger directed at you for no reason other than your particular characteristic. Even if it's something I disagree with, I as a human feel the need to mm-hmm. to you, right? There's several, mm-hmm. but then in our culture today, I struggle with how do we do that so can you tell me more about how to how to navigate that? Does that make sense? That question, like that fear? Yeah, yeah, no, it it, it totally makes sense. And you know, we one of the things we talk about in um, a later chapter in the book when we because we we use the term ally in the book in two ways. So one of it is just a very broad term for anyone who belongs to a sort of more advantaged social group on a particular issue, but who is a person of goodwill, right? Who just wants to treat people with respect. Another form of ally is a more active form of ally, which is someone who goes out into the world and steps into situations to try to intervene when someone is being treated badly on a particular issue. And so we give the example of a a waitress at a restaurant who overheard uh, one of the customers yelling uh, racist slurs at another customer, and she jumped into the situation and was like, "Get out of my restaurant!" And da da da. Like that's that's a very active form of allyship. And one of the points we make in the book is that it is okay because we think it's you're going to disagree sometimes. It is okay to disagree with you know the person that you're trying to help or trying to support in some way, but just clarify. The limitations of that with the other person. So you can say, you know, I don't really think I'm the best ally for you in this particular situation, right? So if they, if you're trying to support them in some way and they say, well, you know, I think the best way that you can support me is X, Y, and Z, and that you don't agree with that or you don't want to do that, it's perfectly fine to say, look, I, I really respect you. I support you on, you know, A, B, and C things here's why I don't think that I'm the best ally for you in this particular situation. And then you can, you can try to re-engage with them on another issue at a different time. Now that's probably going to be an uncomfortable conversation for you and the other person. They might feel that you've let them down in some way, but I don't really see any other way around it because if you go, just go along with it, then you've obviously sacrificed your own authenticity and integrity and just sort of going along with something that, is not true to who you are. But I also don't think the solution is just to not even have the conversation with them and just to run away. And, you know, I think a part of the theme, I think you're probably getting from the tenor of a lot of the answers that I'm giving is I think there's real value in just having that, you know, honest, open, respectful dialogue with the other person about it. Mm -hmm. And if you do it in a sensitive and curious way, I think the conversation is going to go much more easily than if you just try to run away from the conversation altogether. Sure. Yeah. And um, I think it was page 53. You talk about the importance of emotions. And I think a lot of reasons why we don't engage is especially in the United States. I don't think our country is very good at emotions. We, we do anger really well. We do happy really well, but there's like, 
I think of the feelings wheel. There's like a lot of different emotions. Right. So what do you do? I would say a lot of older people, they're still five-year-olds in terms of their emotional growth. And I think that's kind of what we're running into is like people who haven't learned those emotions. What do you do with that? If they're just flat out emotionally mature, even though they might be 45 years old. What do you yeah. Do? So one of the tools we talk about is what we call naming and reframing your emotions. So one of the uh, things that often happens in these conversations is that they trigger intense discomfort, right? You're in the conversation, you're feeling this overwhelming and co sense of dread. And I just want to, I just want to get out of this conversation. What we encourage people to do is pause and ask themselves, well, what specific emotion am I feeling right now? It's not just dread or discomfort. It's probably something more specific. And the four that we identify as the most common are fear, anger, guilt, or hopelessness. And of course, it can be other things as well. But I think pausing, there's you know, psychological literature to suggest that if you just bring up to the surface and name what emotion you're experiencing, that process alone can reduce some of the harmful effects of that uh, emotion on you because it doesn't just seem so overwhelming in that moment to actually say, oh, you know what I think I'm feeling right now? I think I'm feeling guilt because I just confused two people of the same ethnicity with each other and I feel really bad that I did that. And so that's what I'm feeling. And then we encourage you to reframe that emotional experience. So once you've identified that that's the emotion, think about whether there is a more positive spin that you can put on the emotion that's more growth oriented. So the guilty story that you would be telling yourself there would be, you know, I'm a horrible person because I mixed up these these two people. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's not great. That's not le- learning and growth oriented. A reframed interpretation would be to say, everyone makes mistakes. I will apologize, learn their names and try better next time. And, you know, that's not gonna, I mean, as you say, if you've got the emotional capacity of a, of a toddler, then it's, that's not going to work immediately. It's going to take some practice. It might mean that you actually have to step away from the conversation and pause and reflect on it and talk to some other people in your life about it, and then maybe go back into the conversation later and say, hey, I just want to pick up on what we were talking about the other day when you've had time to process it. But that technique of naming the emotion and then trying to reframe it, we think can be helpful over time. Um, I think we have time for maybe one more question. I I want to jump into sort of a big question. I know there's only a couple minutes left. We wanted to go through a lot of use cases we didn't have time to get into. So I'm going to jump into sort of an an intense, gnarly one, at least in my opinion. Maybe it's easy. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping you can help me. But I, I want to talk about an example, not because this particular topic is is crucially important, but I think it represents some of the current climate around cancel culture. Um, Black Lives Matter, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I personally, in a lot of conversations I had, especially during that time, kind of in 2021, when that was particularly heightened sensitivity was, it seemed to be very easy for many people. So this is going from, it's where I'm trying to take our conversation just kind of directionally is from the one-to-one conversation, which I think we talked a lot about is to now, how do I ally or think about my support for these broader topics. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's pretty easy for most people I talk to about this myself. Like I talked about my son, you know, racism in this country is a problem. But I think, um, it, you know, I think the uh, many people I spoke to around specifically the Black Lives Matter movement was the struggle was not with saying at a fundamental level, Black Lives Matter, but it seemed as if 
the broader movement had been had sort of aligned itself sort of the implication was by saying black lives matter you're also sort of affirming the much broader agenda around several topics in particular the lgbtqia you know things and so there was mm-hmm. struggle with well how do i say and then and then we're being told who didn't you know put out there our you know color our linkedin pages with a black flag or whatever right was oh then you don't support anything you're racist so mm-hmm. how do you pull apart these topics where it seems again in culture agreeing to a particular thing actually means you're trying to affirm a broader agenda and i may have problems with the broader agenda that's the, you know mm-hmm. comment on that help me understand that because I, w- I struggle with that personally and i think in not, that's not and that's one of many places i try to i try to figure out you know so first of all thank you for asking these incredible questions uh it's clear you've read the book in a lot of detail and so i really appreciate these thoughtful and difficult questions i will say so thank you um <laughs> only 45 minutes <laughs> no this is great so i think i want to tease out a couple of of things of what you just said there so one is i think part of the problem is this uh pressure that you may be feeling to publicly align yourself with a particular cause in a way that's quite visible so you mentioned a profile photo or maybe like a facebook post or a linkedin or what have you and i personally think that social media is the worst place to have these conversations uh we actually at some point considered writing a chapter in the book about having these conversations on social media. And we ultimately abandoned it because we felt like, well, it's just a mess. I I think if you want to have productive conversations on these topics, maybe log off and uh, talk to people face to face. So I I think the challenge that I would give back to anyone saying, oh, well, why don't you have, you know, this flag or this slogan or this whatever on your social media profile would be, I I personally would say, well, I I just don't like having these conversations on social media it's not that i don't agree or support a lot of you know issues it's just that i find that social media flattens and oversimplifies uh, issues that are really quite complex and i prefer to express my support in other ways and so i think there um when you are actually talking with people or having more nuanced conversations i think is where you can tease out those those differences that you're describing right because you you know you might be able to say you know here are the ways that i do support the black community here are sort of the things that i whatever you know organizations that i donate to or things that i'm involved in in my community you know without having to signify in some you know visible way that you are a member of a particular you know, movement broadly defined. I don't know if that makes sense, but I kind of feel like, yeah, logging off and having these nuanced conversations is a better way to approach it. No, I really appreciate that. I think, I think what, again, aligning with the book, what you said, which was it invites, invites the more nuanced conversations because so many times these, you know, media driven kind of frenzies on any part of the political spectrum, by the way, they're everywhere, (laughs) right? That's not, is, is there so, whatever the opposite of nuance is, right? It becomes very have a good conversation unless it's actually a real conversation. So really appreciate, mm-hmm. appreciate all the coaching and dialogue. And I know I've learned a lot. So really thank you for the time. So, and David, one, this is, I love long form podcasts. I just absolutely love it because there's a give and take. And I even just love seeing your face as you answer the questions. Cause it's not just 
you're a real person, just like I'm a real person. Granted, we're across the country. I absolutely love long form podcasts. Um, so anyway, that's also kind of why we podcast. But is, is there any question we haven't asked you? I really wish Josh and Eric would have asked you this question. Anything that we haven't asked you about the book or um, that just kind of like, hey, I want to share this. I don't think so because uh, as I said I really I really genuinely think that these questions have been really excellent. Uh, I will say sometimes you know when I'm asked about it it's it's very very broad, right? Tell me about the book. You've delved into things at a level that I find very impressive and I I I think we've kind of covered essentially all the chapters of the book in the questions that you've asked. So no, I don't I don't think I have anything else. Okay. Well, super. Well, thank you for taking yeah, time thanks out for your, your time. busy you know you're schedule. Busy. Thank you. And so the book comes out February 7th. Where can people get it? Uh, anywhere that they would usually buy books, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, their local independent bookstore in their community should have it. Uh, so yeah. Right. Super. We'll also put the link at the bottom of our podcast. I do want to just thank you so much for just talking with us. And uh, before the podcast, Josh and I, when we read books, we argue back and forth over the phone. So it's been fun to our questions came out of lots of discussions. We read the book and we kind of feel like college students and okay, let's go ask the prof now what he, he meant by a lot of things. So thank you so much for taking. Oh, good. Well, I love, I love, I love hearing that. Like if this book stimulates a lot of arguments like that, that's music to my ears. Cause that's great. We want people to engage with it, disagree with it, debate it. And so that's, that's great. Excellent. All right. Thanks, David. We appreciate your time. And All right. Thank Kenji Force as well. I know he couldn't join us, but I uh, really appreciate both of you. Thank you. Of course. No, thank you both. Take All care. Right. Take care. Okay. Bye.